From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Andrea Weeb, and I'll be your host for the next half hour environmental news from across Canada and around the world. Bats. I'm sure you've seen a lot of the paper variety hanging from front doors or stuck onto posters as Halloween creeps up on us. So, it seems fitting that October 24th to 31st has been proclaimed as Bat Week by the city of Calgary. Not only do bats play a key role in Halloween festivities, but they are also important for maintaining healthy ecosystems. We're very excited that Calgary is recognizing the importance of our furry flying friends, so this week we're bringing back an archive from September 2017 about the challenges faced by bats. We'll also re-air an interview with Edmonton's resident moss man, Dr. Rene Valend, about the boss that is moss. But first, here are environmental news headlines for this week. the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project are criticizing the National Energy Board, saying that they are making all the same mistakes that led to the Federal Court of Appeals rejection of the pipeline approval this past August. The National Energy Board is restarting its review of the project as part of a federal process to address the mistakes that were identified by the Federal Court of Appeals in August. The federal government, after accepting the Federal Court of Appeals rejection of the project on October 3rd, gave the National Energy Board 22 weeks to complete its assessment. At the same time, the government committed to consulting in a meaningful way with First Nations. However, opponents of the pipeline expansion who are involved in the National Energy Board's new review process are saying that nothing has changed. The National Energy Board's new review process gives participants a five-week deadline to brief an expert who will produce a report. The first National Energy Board's review of this project gave participants a deadline of seven months. Hoselim, a Squamish Nation councillor, stated that the government-imposed timeline of five weeks prevents meaningful assessment and therefore meaningful consultation with First Nations. If you live in the Edmonton area, there's a free documentary screening happening on Thursday, November 1st at the Princess Theatre. Human Flow is the title of a documentary by internationally renowned artist Ai Weiwei that captures images of the astounding and often tragic journeys of human migration across the world fueled by famine, war, and climate change. Doctors Without Borders are hosting the event and will lead a discussion before the film about the many challenges that people face when forced to leave the places they called home. To watch the trailer for this film or to register your spot for the free screening, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. Now let's get into our stories for this week. In the spring of 2017, Terra Informers Lauren, Charlie, and Amanda attended an event called Living with Bats, put on by the Alberta Community Bat Program. The group of Terra Informers spoke with Erin Lowe of the Alberta Community Bat Program and asked her about general bat info, how to attract bats to your neighborhood, and to highlight some of the challenges being faced by bats today. In the spirit of Halloween and the newly pronounced Bat Week, here is Lauren, Charlie, and Amanda speaking with Erin Lowe. So I'm Erin Lowe. Um, I'm the Edmonton Regional Coordinator of the Alberta Community Bat Program. And you're speaking today about bats. <laughs> how, how to include them. Uh, include them if you want to attract them to, to your area or kind of what to do if you um, think that you need to exclude them from a house or kind of just living with bats and kind of appreciating bats as well. Uh, so as I was saying with data collection, so 
we're moving into the second year um, this summer of a citizen science-based pro project. So we're encouraging um, landowners who have roofs on their properties to submit um, the locations of, of bat roofs. So essentially what we're trying to do is get an idea of what species are using these roosts and then just some of the characteristics. So whether it's in an attic or whether it's in a barn or whether it's a natural roost, a bat house, bat condo, what, whatever the situation might be, then we can really tie it all together. The big thing with bats is they're pretty difficult to identify, so that's where we're asking for a guano sample. So it's it's a relatively um, cost-effective way that we can get a fairly reliable um, identification of the bat, as well as um, counts as well, if that's something that, that you can do, is just to get an idea of how big these houses are. Um, so just kind of generally speaking, um, lots of bats, huge amount of bats. So they actually make up a 20% of all mammals, um, over 1,200 species. And we're finding out more like species all the time with these netting projects. Again, it's Birds are a little bit easier to study in, in the sense that they're not kind of flying around in the middle of the night and not at times when people are generally kind of just wandering around looking for birds. So it's it's a very difficult group to study and that's kind of probably led to uh, a lot being unknown about bats. Um, every continent, except for Antarctica as well, so they're, they're really quite everywhere. Generally speaking, again, um, they can be divided into megabats or microbats. So megabats are your fruit eaters or nectar um, drinkers, and then your microbats are going to be the ones that are using echolocation, uh, so eating the insects, and as well as like amphibians and um, rodents and stuff. They, they have some really unique, really unique diets. Um, in terms of kind of convincing why bats are awesome, it's they can eat a ton of mosquitoes. So if you think of how long they can live for and how big these colonies can get, it's just it's an insane amount. It's like tons and tons of mosquitoes over the course of the colony's kind of lifetime, which is just awesome. So that eats a thousand mosquitoes an hour. Is that the colony or per bat? That's per bat. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. No, it's just it's just unreal. Um, threats to bats. So habitat degradation is a big one. So again, it's as I had mentioned before, it's the roosts that they're choosing often aren't like the nice, young, healthy-looking trees. They're ones that they can get into, or ones with like heart rot or frost cracks, um, cavities and such, so it's, they're going to be taken down due to the human um, safety concern. And then also just um, like with forestry and different developments as well, we're taking out quite a bit of forest and they do require older, mature forests. I don't know, have, have you heard much about wind turbines and bats? Not too, too much? Um, so something new that's kind of been popping up, it's so there's fatality associated with the bats physically striking the blades, but the biggest thing is actually something called barotrauma. So it's essentially bats are just getting too close to the turbines. They're not detecting them for um, a few different supposed reasons, but and essentially just the pressure difference between what the turbine's kind of producing and between their lungs is just causing their lungs um, to explode, essentially. <coughs> so they're just dropping and out of the air, which is very, very horrible. And it's, we're thinking, um, Birds and bats are a little bit different just in kind of the design of their lungs, so these are much more pliable, and it's again kind of a flight ad adaptation um, as a mammal that can fly. This is um, definitely more of a concern out east, like to the point that they're actually having to shut down um, like entire wind turbine facilities because they're just, the numbers are too high. So there's a lot of talk right now, um, especially I think with pushes to get more on green energy um, to figure out how we can address this because it's the numbers are getting a little bit too high and you know even experts are expecting over the next I think 50 years like 90% declines and it's especially in the hoary bat 
So it's we've got wind, like white nose syndrome for our little browns and owls, and we have like a 90% population decline in hoary bats over the next few years because of wind turbines. Yeah. Would it work at all to have any kind of like a signal generator that would? <laughs> yeah, it's it's something that we've um, we've you know it's something that I've been reading about and something that people are are talking about. So ultrasonic whistles is kind of but problem is is like. <laughs> We don't understand enough what attracts or like repels bats. There's not enough knowledge if it's actually going to attract them or like. Which you wouldn't want to have happen. No, that that would probably be not not the option to go with. Um, a big thing is shutting them down. Um, most of these fatalities happen during like a three-week period. So in Alberta, at least, the spring migration doesn't seem to be as bad as the fall migration. And it's not just the juveniles. Like we were finding an equal amount of kind of adults and juveniles. So for whatever reason. Fall migration seems to kill a lot more bats, so kind of just trying to find mitigations to minimize fatalities. So the white nose syndrome, I'll talk a little bit more about. Um, I think that this one's been in the news quite a bit, especially with it popping up in Washington last year, Washington State last year. Um, so just kind of the basics of it in case you haven't heard about it. So this is affecting our hibernating bats. Um, aptly named again, not the most original naming group, white nose, because it's a white fungus predominantly on their noses. <coughs> it was first detected in 2006 in New York. Um, today, I mean, it's like it's killed over six million bats, and it's wiping out entire hibernating colonies, like thousands and thousands at, at one go. You just walk in, and, and there's just carcasses everywhere, and it's spreading really fast. <coughs> so how it kills, it's it's not necessarily um, the fungus itself that it that kills, but it's basically just it wakes them up too much over the course of the winter. So they only have a set amount of fat reserves. So if they um, having to wake up constantly to be grooming this fungus off, that is just like it's growing into them. So it's also causing tissue damage. So that's again, um, it's going to start growing into their wings, and so that's when they're, they're not able to fly. Um, as well as forcing them out in the winters. So different signs. This is more often not if you're actually kind of near a hibernacular, you're going to see them flying during the day in the winter. Um, you're also going to see the white fungus on the nose, wings, ears, or tail. This is they're going to groom it off as soon as they come out. Um, so it's not really something if you find a bat you should be seeing it necessarily. Um, but this is again where we can shine like a UV light on it and then uh, you can see the damage on the wings. So current research, um, the biggest thing as I mentioned, uh, it's probably what the caving groups are doing. Just trying to get an idea of where these hibernacula are. Um, public outreach and awareness, you know, just kind of getting people to like bats and promote bats and trying to help them as much as we can during the summer so they're in better shape for, for the winter. A lot of funding and stuff from the government and different organizations in terms of research. The thing with cures is like, it's it's a good idea and obviously it, its attention is, is needed there, but I mean, even if we find a cure for it, it's like, how are we supposed to apply that? It's not like we can just code a cave in it. It's, there's a lot of different kind of um, interactions in the cave that we can't just apply like antifungal to the entire cave and hope for the best. It's who knows like what else you'd be wiping out or, or changing within it. So it's it's a tough one. It's it's a really tough one. So. The big thing is kind of just, at this point, raising awareness, finding out where the hibernacula are. And then for the caving community as well, if, if you are into that, it's just making sure kind of like gears decontaminated, or if you've been in white nose areas in caves, it's just like using entirely different gear. You don't want to start start being the reason to introduce a, a fungus to, to Alberta. What people have thought is like a truck probably brought it over or something, so again, bats like being in blinds, so again with like campers and stuff, it's a big thing if, if you do have a camper van and stuff, it's 
or umbrellas, like close them during the night so you know that they're not getting in there. Um, open them up, like the uh, blinds before you leave, and then you just know that you're not bringing them across. On that happy note. <laughs> so I want to thank Erin for coming out today on such a blustering day to <laughs> yeah, help thanks. us understand a little bit more about, about that. Um, so uh, feel free to... Uh, can you tell us about your experience working with wind turbines and bats? Yeah, so I, I was um, working for an environmental consulting company, so it was one of the projects that we were involved with. And uh, essentially, with the government has um, like pre and post construction um, guidelines that are required. So anytime that a new facility goes up, we need to um, yeah do the do the pre and post construction. So we were looking after the post construction. So um, we were walking around looking for bat and bird carcasses, and then. Um, they had a certain kind of threshold that they had to, or they couldn't exceed, otherwise um, further mitigation, and such as like shutting down the turbines at night, or um, kind of further further actions if, if that was required as well. But um, bats are definitely seem to be more affected in, in eastern Canada with wind turbines, not to say it, it is a minimal risk here, um, but it's the, the numbers are, are a lot higher in, in eastern Canada than what we're seeing here, luckily, I guess in some ways. <laughs> is that just because there's like more winter turbines in the east or I don't know um I think maybe but I mean even then the the proportion of like bats that we're finding dead underneath are a lot higher and it's um like even some of the larger facilities are, are still not finding the numbers that um eastern Canada so like the ones in Ontario are finding for some reason so hmm, I don't know mysterious. it's very strange <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, bats are kind of just yeah mysterious on so many levels yeah <laughs> I've like seen these wind turbines. I don't think they're like being used or anything, but they're just like those like they're just cylinders, I guess, that kind of move. Do you think like those would be any better? I think so because okay. I mean it's um, the so the wind turbines. I mean these these are massive like blades and stuff. So I imagine the pressure differences that it's causing are, are fairly extensive. Mm-hmm. So I mean if you have something that's circular and like I've I haven't looked into this a ton, like I've, I've heard it and read into it a little bit, but I imagine it's just gonna be creating a much smaller. So I mean I think it's still going to affect them to a degree, but it's just it's gonna minimize that, that area that's causing that, that pressure pressure difference. So I I do think they're hopefully hopefully one day it's yeah. they'll get there. Can you tell us why the hoary bat is your favorite bat? Because <laughs> yeah. it's adorable. Um I don't know, it's I I honestly think it's just because it's the prettiest, and I've now just attached to that, and now it's just, I think it's awesome in every way. I think the migratory species are, are pretty cool. Yeah, they're just, they're, they're cute, and they're attractive, and I kind of just love them. <laughs> so. And if someone's interested in getting into bats, uh, what would you recommend to them? Um, I would say volunteering is, is huge, kind of just going out with people, um, whether it's grad students or just people that are doing it. So if you can find any sort of connection to go out with people, that's kind of your best bet. But a lot of it is um, we're being driven to just more of acoustics rather than actual handling, which handling was what got me into it. Um, kind of like talk, talk to us about it. I mean, certainly you can email me, find out, find out about the program as well and find out different ways to get involved. That was a story from our archives with Tara Informers Lauren, Charlie, and Amanda speaking with Aaron Lowe of the Alberta Community Bat Program. If you want to find out more about how you can help out the bats, check out our website at terrainforma.ca for some more Bat Week resources. Our second archive piece from March 2015 puts a spotlight on moss, the sometimes unsung hero for many plant enthusiasts. 
Tiara informer Tasmia Nisha spoke with Dr. Renee Balan, professor in the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta. They chat about why Dr. Balan is so passionate about these plants and why it can be legally difficult to protect rare mosses. It's beautiful moss, really. Remember, these are really small. The leaves will actually, in the right light, you look at them and they will almost make the colony, uh, they'll reflect light in such a way that it makes the little colony uh, glisten, sparkle, so it has little sparkles to it. It's really, really pretty. It does sound pretty. Was there a particular moment, like, that you realized that you were really fascinated by moss, where you're just, like, looking at it one day and you're like, oh, wow, this is cool, I'll just... just study it forever. <laughs> no, no, I didn't do that. I, I um, <clears throat> my interest started, uh, I actually started looking at regular plants, vascular plants, and I, I used to uh, volunteer in the herbarium in, in BioSci at the U of A, and um, so that I could learn the vascular plants, and I wanted to become an ecologist. And as I went along in my undergraduate, I started thinking, oh, you know, I don't know a whole lot about mosses, so maybe sometime I should learn about them, you know, as an ecologist. And at the same time, most of my summers were spent, at least job-wise, working for the national parks. I was a park interpreter, or we used to call ourselves in those days a park naturalist. And I worked... um, so I, I worked there, and, I, and I, I happened to know that a number of students, graduate students from the U of A in the Department of Botany were doing their, master, or their master's and their Ph.D. studies in Jasper, and they happened to be in the same building that I was rooming in. So I, I'd get together with them, and then one day one of the guys was working on mosses. And um, so I said, well, why don't you take me out? I'll go out in the field with you one day, and you can show me some of the mosses. And she did. And um, that's where I started. I said, I'm going to do this, and what courses are, are here? And there was a course on campus, and I took it the next year, and I was hooked. Nice. It's because I like small things. You know, there were a number of things, small things. They were small. Not a lot of people studied them, um, and they were really unique. I mean, there's lots of neat things about mosses that, uh, that's, when I think about it now, that really got me enchanted about them. Uh, I see. The small size being one thing for sure. And what are some other things that enchanted you? Um, they they have some really interesting adaptations that they've developed to um, solve some pretty important problems for for survival. What, most of which are are related to water, um, and also growing in different kinds of habitats. So some of the things are um, one of the neat things about them that I really like is that they have a they have an adaptation called desiccation tolerance and you know when you start talking about desiccation tolerance it'll lead us into a whole bunch of other areas but let's start with that what desiccation tolerance is is that the ability it's the ability of the mosses to and and its relatives to completely dry out and then uh, and it could be dry for two weeks three weeks four weeks you add water and the species, the, the plant, comes back to life and starts to produce, uh, produce food and, and, and sugar once again. Is that so like a moss a version of hibernation? It's, kinda, it's not quite a hibernation, but well, it would be a moss version of hibernation, but it happens all the time. It okay. happens throughout the, throughout the season. Like when, so. when there's a shortage of water, basically. It's like yes, their emergency yes, exactly. mechanism. They, they are growing the whole time, even when it's dry. 
right, through that, but mosses don't. Well, it's because mosses don't have, um, first, they don't have any roots. So when they lose water, they have no way of getting water back into their system, into their cells. So they just, they have no roots. There's, there's no way. How they get water into their cells is only through rainwater and, uh, and humidity. And, and the reason for that is that unlike regular plants, they don't have any protection to, to um, any way to prevent water loss from their, from their leaves. Moss leaves are only one cell thick, most of them. Okay. And um, what about Haler's apple moss? Haler's is a, a big wispy thing with a lot of, a lot of leaves that are, you know, uh, yeah, wispy is the, the term I would use. Interestingly, it was found for the first time in Alberta by the Thomas Drummond. And um, in the case of, in, in that instance, what Tom Drummond was doing is he was with the, um, he found it, well, firstly, he found it in about the same time, 1826, 27. And how he found it is that he was traveling, uh, he was going to travel across the mountains as, as a naturalist for the Richardson expeditions, and he was going to travel with, with the fur traders, with the voyageurs. And they would, what, what they would do is they would go as a big brigade, and they would go up into a place called Athabasca Pass, and then from there they'd be almost into BC, and then they'd go down into British Columbia into uh, the Wood River area, and then to, uh, into the Canoe Reach, and then they would get some canoes, and they'd end up uh, in Vancouver, Washington State via the Columbia River. And anyway, what uh, he was doing is he would collect mosses along the way, and he picked this thing up for the first time in Canada and actually in North America. He picked it up in the Wood River area. So that was the Haler's apple moss. Um, I came to know it because I sit on a on a endangered species committee for the federal government at the national level, and it's one of the species that we presented as a case for a species that might be at risk. I understand that Haler's apple moss was um, under danger from it's the, uh, the oh, hydroelectric inline, dam. Yeah, hydro, mic- micro hydro. Okay, uh, micro hydro projects or inline power projects. Right. Uh, yes, the the idea was that instead of building these humongous dams to produce elect- hydroelectric power, you could build these micro hydro projects to generate electric power, and in a micro hydro project, what is done is you find a really large valley or a reasonable size valley where there's a number of creeks that have a lot of water flowing through them all year round. So what they do with that is they take a big pipe and it's called, the pipe is called a penstock. Some, you might have seen some of these around. Um, And they take the penstock and they put it way up high and they divert the water up high from the creek and they can divert as much as 90% of the water out of that creek. So the water is now diverted into this penstock from way up high and it flows down at high speed and at the bottom of the penstock in the bottom of the valley they put a little uh, hydro generating station with um, turbines and whatever to produce electricity. And then it goes through there, produces electricity, goes back into the mainstream in the bottom of the valley. 
which is where it was heading in the first place before it was diverted. So what they'll do is they look for a number of these streams. Um, in the Holmes River Valley, for instance, in, in BC, there are 11 streams that they, that they have fingered and in earmarked for this, and actually they have started development on this. And they've, uh, they, they then take all the power generated at each one of the little stations and they put it together and then feed it into the main grid. So it sounds like it's very green and everything, and it sounds like it's really good, and there's, you know, you're not flooding valleys, and that's a, a really big thing, right? Um, the problem is, is that Haler's apple moss, uh, most of the sites that we have found are associated with these creeks. They grow as the species grows on, on cliffs bordering creeks and needs high humidity. Most of our sites are, are like that. Many of our sites are like that. We know that the species doesn't like high temperatures in the summertime. It needs high humidity and it needs to be, um, and that usually means um, being close to a very cold creek or a creek that throws up a lot of, a lot of spray or humidity and, um, and staying in the, in the shade. Well, these are the same creeks that they want to put the penstocks in. So what happens? Well, what happens is that when they suck the water out of the creek, it means the humidity theoretically should go down. And humidity is one of the important factors in maintaining the presence of this moss at that site. So our worry, of course, is now they've changed the microclimate of these creeks for the moss, and so that means the moss will just sort of poop out. Okay, so um, you work on like the, with the government to protect endangered species, but they weren't able to heed the recommendations. Um, well, that's a little bit complicated. Um, the this species, Haler's, and they're protected federally under the Species at Risk Act. The problem is is that um, the Species at Risk Act will only protect a species on federal lands, even within the provinces. Oh, okay. All right. So um, if you find a rare uh, species that is listed as endangered in Jasper National Park or Kootenai or Yoho or in your local post office, these are all federal lands, they would be protected under the Species at Risk Act. But if the species is found on uh, lands that are, are uh, managed by the province, the crown lands or, or whatever they call them, then there is no protection at all unless the province itself protects endangered species. So British Columbia does not have an Endangered Species Act. They do work with endangered species, but there's no protection per se. That is, uh, that, and they have not given any protection to haters' apple moss. Okay. Okay. So all of this stuff in going on in the Holmes River Valley, and also, by the way, the Wood River Valley, there was an application for one of these, the Wood River, where that it's actually a major population of Hillers is. There's an application there. I don't know how far they've gone with it, but to actually um, to uh, divert water out of that as well, uh, which is really unfortunate. But like I said, I don't know where they've gone with that application. Um, so, in, in any case, Haler's has no protection per se, no legal protection in British Columbia, in the province. So, and what's the situation in Alberta, like um, and other provinces? Do they have um, Endangered Species Acts? Many of the other provinces have Endangered Species Act. So, um, Nova Scotia, Ontario. What other one? I think yeah, I think Manitoba also has one. <clears throat> Alberta does not have one and neither does British Columbia and the Northern Territories don't have them either. So 
um, you know, that's unfortunate. Alberta, we started uh, drafting an endangered, endangered species legislation a number of years ago, and then there was a huge change in the government with uh, Stelmac, and they put the hold on that, and, and it has not come back to the table to be worked on. Um, in Alberta, for instance, Porcel's Brium is listed by the Alberta government as threatened, but it's only protected under the uh, Wildlife Act which is um, really very different from our Species at Risk Act. The Wildlife Act has endangered species tacked on as kind of an addendum or oh, appendix, okay. you know. Um, so they don't get the same kind of protection, per se, as you would under the species, the federal legislation. That was a story from March 2015 with Tara and former Tasmia Nishat speaking with Dr. Renee Balan, moss enthusiast and professor of renewable resources at the University of Alberta. That's it for this episode. For any information on any of our headlines, events, or organizations mentioned in this episode, check out our website at terrainforma.ca for links, resources, or to check out other past episodes. Terra Informa is produced at CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory, the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue living and gathering here. If you have any questions or comments, you can send us an email to Tara at cjsr.com or tweet it at Tara Informa. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to everyone who worked on this week's episode. Amanda Rooney, Hannah Cunningham, and Charlie Blade. I've been your host, Andrea Wee. Catch us again next week right here on Terra Informa. And happy Bat Week, everyone. Mm-hmm.